Hey everyone, this is Joe from History Inc. Uh, today's going to be a little more of an informal episode, um, an episode where I just kind of talk about uh, a certain topic. So there'll be plenty of space for like extended tangents, if you will, that I uh, <laughs> might go on in, in coming across something that I, I have written down or something I just think of along the way. Because for this episode, we're going to be talking about forgotten presidents. Um, this episode came about... Uh, actually through a poll on my Instagram account. If you don't follow my Instagram account, please go do that. It's um, be be uh, worth your follow, hopefully. And uh, I'd really appreciate that. At history underscore smash on Instagram. A little shameless uh, plug <laughs> for my Instagram account. But um, So I did a poll on my Instagram account on a story. If people wanted to hear an episode about uh, George Washington being uh, a port military leader. Uh, and kind of just bumbling into his successes, which that episode is going to come. It'll probably be the uh, second one to come after this, because I have another episode uh, planned in advance before or after this one, excuse me. Um, and so it was either between George Washington being a poor military leader or an episode about presidents we forget. Uh, an overwhelming majority, about 80% on my Instagram account, said they wanted to hear an episode about forgotten presidents. So that was, that's why we're here, really. <laughs> and what really got me inspired to make an episode about this was I was just thinking about presidents. And I, I, was, I was talking to some friends of mine and, and a professor about presidents and who we think would have made a really good president under different circumstances. Uh, presidents who we think are underappreciated or presidents that we just think are completely forgotten about. So that kind of spurred me to do this episode. So uh, there will be two parts to this. Uh, the first part, I'm going to talk about actual presidents um, like Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, you know, presidents like that. Those aren't forgotten presidents. I'm just giving an example. So presidents that have actually been elected to the White House, you know, they stay in the White House. And then I want to do a second part where I talk about people like Joshua Clayton or William B. Ide, who are both presidents of technically other nations. So, um, yeah, yeah. That's a really annoying noise. So before I'm going to uh, go into right quick to really quickly, excuse me, to a commercial break, and I'm going to fix this noise so you guys don't have to hear this through the entire podcast episode. So here's a word from our sponsors. Hey, just kidding about the sponsored segment that goes before the very intro now. Apparently, um, unlike other episodes, I've been able to put the sponsor segment right after the intro, but apparently now it says I can't do that. But uh, that's okay. So. We'll just dive right into the topics then. So, like I said, I'm going to do an episode about presidents, presidents that people forget about, or presidents have like fallen out of the deserved historic limelight. I think they deserve. So, to start, we'll we'll just do like really obscure presidents. And I had show notes for this, like a, like a script, but I wanted to do something a little more, uh, just kind of informal, something I, I would like to actually, I would enjoy to talk about and discuss about because I feel like I could bring more to it than what I have written. So, I wanted to start with Franklin Pierce. He was the 14th president. He's probably most well-known for being one of the better-looking <laughs> presidents um, and for being a, a party animal. So, by the way, throughout this episode, I'm going to plug two other episodes because uh, the, the hottest presidents episode. If you haven't listened to that, give that a listen if you want to. I talk about Franklin Pierce being the hottest president, in my opinion. And uh, Chester Arthur comes up a little later, and I, I remember writing my show notes that 
um, Franklin or not Franklin Pierce, Chester Arthur is described as like tall, thin, good looking, and he looks like a president. I don't think I don't feel like that's a bit of a stretch on whoever's part or whoever's quote that was from. But anyways, <laughs> Franklin Pierce. He was the 14th president. Um, he was a huge party animal. And he was actually really responsible for, uh, I guess he wasn't as responsible. He played a large role in, in the coming Civil War. And that was because when he was president, um, the Kansas Territory, the Kansas-Nebraska Territory, was um, vying for statehood. And what had happened is, like any state who, or any territory wanting to be a state at the time, the question of slavery is going to be brought up. Um, and if you want to listen about something like that, you can listen to my episode, Origins of the Civil War, about the Missouri Compromise. So, second episode plug there. Probably the last one. <laughs> um, but the Kansas-Nebraska uh, territory was pushing for statehood. And that brought up the question of slavery. Should it be entered uh, as a free or slave state? Um, So this kind of created tensions between free soilers there and uh, pro-slavers. So what uh, Pierce did, instead of, you know, just saying, oh, Kansas could be a slave state, because he was a southern sympathizing Democrat from New Hampshire, uh, he he was probably perfectly fine with saying, you know, Kansas just will enter that as a slave state, because he supported slavery. And it wouldn't have done anything for him, honestly. He wouldn't have thought two two seconds about it any longer if he hadn't had to. But to avoid controversy, he signed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which just created even more of a controversy than what it would if he probably would have just entered it as a slave state. So the Kansas-Nebraska Act just essentially let the people of the Kansas-Nebraska Territory who were eligible to vote vote on whether it should be admitted as a free or slave state. And some tensions rose because people from Missouri uh, started cuff- coming in to the Kansas-Nebraska Territory and voting for it to be a slave state. Uh, so of the eligible el- elder- eligible excuse me, voters from Kansas, most of them that voted came from Missouri. So there was like – I'm thinking of the number here. It's only 2,000 eligible voters came from Kansas where like 5,000 or something came from Missouri. Uh, they came across the border. I'm trying to remember if that's right or not. And I, I thought I had thought I had written had it written somewhere. I'm smelling toast here in my workspace. I'm about to have a stroke. But <laughs> so the, the, this essentially started bleeding Kansas, which uh, is a little conflict between free soilers and pro-slavers. And it's it's sort of a testing ground almost for the Civil War. It's it's kind of not really being a prophecy, you know, towards the Civil War, but it's definitely eerie to look back on and be like, okay, so, you know, we see the issue of slavery can spark conflict like it did in Kansas, but we're not really going to, we're going to assume this is just like a one-off thing. But secession, if you think about it, has had been a big issue, even since before the Constitution was signed, where the Articles of Confederation left the states as essentially sovereign nations until the Constitution was signed off. But if, as you, if you listen to the Missouri Compromise episode, which I think is two episodes back after, right before the Notre Dame episode, um, I talk about how um, when the, the Missouri uh, Territory was being adopted into statehood and they had like the Talmadge Amendment, which uh, essentially banned slavery in the territory that didn't really pass, 
people thought of, or threatened really, not just thought about seceding from the Union and creating a, a slaveholding uh, Southern nation. So, and that was in 1819. This is 1850s. So you, you really get to see that secession is a long running threat uh, that the United States was just trying to kind of push under the push under the carpet. Um, so with the with bleeding Kansas, you have people like John Brown who earns fame, and he then goes all around the country, getting uh, giving speeches and seeing if he can get funding for his ultimate mission uh, at Harper's Ferry, his raid on Harper's Ferry, to essentially uh, go to Harper's Ferry where the U.S. arsenal is, uh, raid it steal weapons, and incite a slave rebellion in, in Virginia. It didn't really work, <laughs> as we know now. And he only raised an army of about 21 men, including almost all of his sons and just a few slaves. And most of the people that he killed uh, that were innocent people were freed slaves. Uh, I know there's a man watching the, uh, watching the Harpers Ferry train station who was killed who was a free slave. And I believe there's one more that ended up being shot by one of his men or himself that ended up being a, a freed slave. But <laughs> that's my extended tangent. Like I said, it's going to be a little more of an informal episode. Um, excuse my voice. I do have a sore throat. I don't think it's strep, but I had a cough drop. It disappeared. Um, <laughs> and the rest are downstairs. So there's my voice. I get deep sounding golden Morgan Freeman's. But Franklin Pierce, um, a controversial president, definitely that 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 seems to be forgotten to history. Um, one of the more well-known things about Franklin Pierce also is that his son Benjamin uh, Benjamin Pierce, I called him Benjamin Franklin, uh, was killed in a train accident. So it was very shortly before Pierce's inauguration. He and his family were on a train, I think, heading to Washington. Maybe I'm, I'm not really sure. I didn't. I don't really recall where they were going, but it doesn't really matter, I guess now. But <laughs> the train derailed, um, and his son was the only casualty. Uh, almost instantly, he was pretty much decapitated right in front of his father's eyes. So that's definitely a part of maybe Franklin Pierce's ability to party and drink so much, especially as president. Um, I believe the quote is after he left office that. After the White House, there's nothing left to do but to get drunk or to drink or something like that. But he had a pretty miserable life. He lost one son at birth and another, I think he was 11 or 3 or something, uh, to typhus. So he led a pretty miserable life, um, especially even though he was the president, but losing his sons um, and eventually being kind of hated for the Kansas-Nebraska Act. <coughs> Excuse me. But also he, he repealed the Missouri Compromise. Um, and like I said, if you want to listen to listen to my last episode, second last episode really, about the Missouri Compromise, go do that. It's a really good episode. It's my favorite episode. I took a lot of time researching that and putting that together. Appreciate it if you listen. So uh, the next person I have in my show notes is Chester A. Arthur. And I, w- I, w- I would say Arthur is probably the most forgotten of the U.S. presidents. Um, he was the successor to James Garfield. So the only reason Chester was president is because of the assassination of James Garfield, which is kind of unfortunate for the country because I think James Garfield would have succeeded very, very well as president had it not been for Charles Gateau, who for some reason just super desperately wanted to be the ambassador to France. 
and it's it's such a weird position to just like beg somebody for. But I mean, hey, it got to the point where <laughs> he had been denied so many times that he went and assassinated a president over it. Um, and a really interesting thing about James Garfield's assassination is that he didn't die the day of the assassination. He lived for about 90 days afterwards. And he had all the supposedly the best doctors in the country who just kind of used their hands to probe his wound and dig for the bullet, which eventually led to infections. And even more interestingly, had it not been that James Garfield was laying on a bed with metal springs, he probably would have lived because um, none other than Alexander Graham Bell himself came to visit the president with a uh, very primitive metal te- metal detector. And it, it worked, but um, like I said, he was, I was sleeping on a bed with – he was laying on a bed with metal uh, springs, and I guess they hadn't figured that, figured that out until after the fact that he died. But that's an interesting little story. There's a book about it. Um, I have it on my shelf. Where is that? Oh, it's called Destiny of the Republic. I haven't read it yet, but I, I, I would like to get around to that sometime. I have a huge p- collection of presidential It's not a really huge collection of presidential books. The goal is to get a book about every single president. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see how that goes. I have a book about um, the first three presidents. Still looking for Monroe, Eve Van Buren, got Jackson, Polk, Lincoln, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, and Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy's not a president, he ran. I have a book about Aaron Burr. He ran for president, vice president, tried to start his own country. That's an interesting little story no one ever talks about the Burr conspiracy. It's gained kind of popularity not in, in the recent uh, months, but hey, you know, you know the Burke conspiracy kind of is, is entering the limelight a little more. I feel like there should be a movie about it. I think there was a really cool movie. It's like a show like start with like Burr. I don't know, maybe either at the duel with like Alexander Hamilton and showing him killing Hamilton. Or they could use that as like a guilt, like a, like a flashback. Like they start the movie and like Burr is like sailing on a boat that he that he purchased, one of those huge boats. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the island, but there was a really rich family who lived on an island in the Ohio River. And he had purchased boats and he kind of used his island as like a, a starting off point to go head west and to start his quote unquote empire. But um. Like sailing on one of those boats, meeting on that island with the oh, what's the general's name? I can't believe I forgot the name. I was just thinking about this not too long ago, and I I, I, I remember the name. I just can't think of it right now. But <clears throat> you use these huge boats. You're sailing down the down the river. Gets off, meets a general, and you're like, oh, things are going well. You know, I don't know what he would say. I'm not a movie writer or anything, but and then they could use like. The not the assassination, but the duel and the killing of Alexander Hamilton is like a guilty motive for why Burr is like escaping the United States and heading off to create his own empire. It would also be a very good alternate history about Aaron Burr starting his empire. 
kind of rivaling like the Spanish or the French or even like the United States. That'd be really neat. But hey, that's a topic for another episode I have planned in the future. A couple of friends of mine are going to talk about alternate history. If that goes well, well, you never know. But uh, to get back on track, yeah, Chester A. Arthur. Holy crap, I just went on like a 20-minute tangent <laughs> in between my Chester A. Arthur speech here. But Chester A. Arthur really didn't do anything. So I think it's kind of not for a good reason he's forgotten. Like it sucks, you know, when you forget history. But you don't really need to know anything about Chester A. Arthur. I know he he repeated the one thing I could find that was like anywhere close significant was that he repealed or he vetoed. That's called the uh, Rivers and Harbors Act, which wanted to just take $19 million of the U.S. budget to improve river and harbor facilities for trade. And I don't know why you would veto something like that, especially if, you know, you want your country to be, you know, economically sound, especially based off of trade and kind of establishing yourself as a superpower involves a lot of trade. So you'd think you would want to, like, actually go through with that. <coughs> Excuse me, but I'm so sorry I'm coughing. I just I really wanted to get this episode produced. And uh I really I just needed to produce it, you know. It's my passion project. <laughs> no, but sorry, I apologize about that. But Chester A. Arthur is maybe it's good that he's forgotten because he was just kind of a waste of time. <laughs> but um you know, there's all sorts of presidents people forget about, like Rutherford Bertrand Hayes, Rutherford Hayes, um, is forgotten about because you know, he's he's kind of important when you talk about, like, Reconstruction because the reason people call him Rutherford Hayes now is that he essentially bought the South's electoral votes in exchange for pulling out the military from there because after the Civil War, um, the United States sent Union troops down there to be an occupying force to make sure that, they, that there wouldn't be another rebellion, there wouldn't be another secession. Um, so in exchange for the electoral votes that he needed... Uh, Rutherford Hayes said to the South, like, hey, we'll pull out the army if you give me all your electoral votes and I can be the president. And he made that kind of backdoor promise, and he went through with it, but at probably the cost of his legacy. But, I, you know, I actually went to Rutherford B. Hayes' house in Ohio, and it's very nice. Um, it, it's kind of similar to that the house of James Garfield, which is also in Ohio. They're not too far apart. But it's a little more um, grand, I suppose. It's on a, at least now it's on a larger plot of land. Um, it probably had been on a large plot of land. But it's, I think it's called Der Spiegel, which means like the mirrors because of the water. It was kind of a swampy area. And the water was so still, it looked like a mirror. I think that's why I called it that. But <coughs> I'm sorry. But the house is a really awesome long wraparound porch. That uh, but the the wraparound porch is really nice. It goes around almost the entire house except for one side. The weird thing is, isn't a railing, so you can just kind of walk off of it, which is is a, is a little strange. But speaking of which, Teddy Roosevelt's house has a wraparound porch. Has a part that's kind of like the steepest part of the um deck, but it doesn't have a railing there. I I, I think. The reason why that part of the house didn't have a railing is because he gave speeches from his uh, a deck, and similar to that of um, James Garfield, James Garfield house, it, it has um, railings, 
but um, he was like the first president to do like the, uh, the um the backyard campaigning sort of thing. He would go out on his front steps and he would um give speeches to people who would line up in front of his house or fill fill his house or and across the street because there's a street that bisects um his property, which is now filled with houses, of course. But people would wait, uh, you know, in the streets and across the street and in his yard, and he would give speeches on his campaign for when he was running for president. Which is an interesting little um, fact when you look at presidents' houses without um, their railings. It seems such a minuscule detail, but it's actually really interesting. Like, like I said, Teddy Roosevelt's house, he would give speeches um, I, I, during his presidency because that was the Summer White House. Of course, the president's house was the Summer White House. So people would gather up on the slopes of the hill that his house was on, and he would give speeches to them from this part of his deck without the um, the railing and the balcony uh, there because it was a little more freeing and he, people could see him better. So that's kind of a little interesting factoid about that. But I don't know about um, Rutherford B. Hayes' house. I don't think that was a reason because it's not really – at least it wasn't explained to me. But um, yeah, his house was nice. It had big doors with big wooden doors with glass so you could see in there. The house was fairly wide and open, very tall ceilings in the bottom floor. Uh, so one thing that was really neat about Rutherford B. Hayes' house was he had this massive portrait from floor to ceiling that kind of it, it you pull out kind of of the wall, and it was a huge portrait of him in his um is a Civil War uniform because he was a commander in the Civil War, as well as James Garfield was a commander during Civil War. And they don't let you forget that at James Garfield's house. There's a monument to it. There's paintings of him all around in the Civil War, in his Civil War uniform, but he was a general, so I mean, I guess I guess he deserves it. I think he fought at Chattanooga, if I'm remembering correctly, or Chickamauga. No, 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 that's not really important right now, but Rutherford B. Hayes is often forgotten and I'm, I'm kind of glad I learned a little more about him and got to visit his house, especially him and Jay, his and James Garfield's house. Both really interesting. They're really nice houses. Um, of the ones of the president's houses I've seen, those are probably the easiest to navigate next to maybe Teddy Roosevelt's house. They're all fairly moderately sized houses. Some, some actually smaller than yeah, uh, like a modern house, Teddy Roosevelt's especially, but Teddy Roosevelt's house was really cool because he had this huge room that had all sorts of uh, his rifles, artifacts of his um, uh, animals that he had killed when he went hunting in Africa and the Amazon. That was that was really neat. You couldn't go in, unfortunately, but they had they had it kind of blocked off and everything was kind of rigged up with alarms. If you leaned across the balcony, the alarm would go off. So in case you don't steal something, Teddy Roosevelt's house is actually probably the most secure of the president's houses I've seen. But um, I'm going on this extremely long tangent about houses and railings and all sorts of <laughs> strange things. But to finish about houses, I think I've seen about 11 presidents' houses. Uh, I've seen both the Roosevelts, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, uh, Garfield, Hayes, Eisenhower, Wilson, Got to be forgetting one. So either ten or eleven. I'm, I'm sure there's another one in there. I'm forgetting for some reason. But 
um, <laughs> getting back to the obscurities of presidents, um, I, would, I would talk about William Henry Harrison, but he's super famous now for being president for like 30 days before he's dying. Uh, here's one one of the more interesting obscurities with like a president uh, being um, David Atchison, the story that he was president for a day. I'll explain that being that Zachary Taylor was about to be given the, the reins of power from James K. Polk in 1849. But in a time where people were, were like super religious and they thought that, work, that thought that working on a Sunday was a sin, um, Taylor's inauguration was supposed to be on a Sunday, so we kind of held off to avoid um, any backlash from that. And Miller Fillmore, his vice president, wasn't available to be inaugurated that day either, so he couldn't be the um, leader for a day, really. So in a technicality, um, President Pro Tempore of Congress, uh, under James K. Polk, David Atchison, was technically, based off the line of succession, president for a day. Even though, even more interesting, really, um, because he was president pro tempore for James K. Polk, and James K. Polk was not president anymore, and it was supposed to be the on, on inauguration day for the vice president and the president, and his position of president pro tempore was really expired. So there has there was no president that day. There was no really person in power other than other than Congress. So that that's one of those weird, interesting kind of folds in presidential history. So I've been kind of going on these tangents, and I'm going to try to wrap it up. But I wanted, wanted to mention a few more things. One thing about David Atchison that I thought was funny is that he kind of found out about it later, and he thought it was super cool, and he thought it was funny. And it's 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 interesting because they put it on his gravestone. So if you look up David Atchison's gravestone, it says, like, President of the United States for a day, David a- David Rice Atchison or something like that. So that was kind of funny. And um, I was going to talk about presidents who deserve a little more limelight. But to make things quick, I'm just going to talk about two more really interesting things. Or really just one because I'm just going to – they're both basically the same thing. Um. Did you know that Dick Cheney and George H.W. Bush were both presidents for a day during others' terms? So when they were vice president, they were president for a day. And the way this happened is that Congress passed the 25th Amendment so they could deem a president unfit for service uh, based off of health or mental health issues. As well, the president could give self-diagnosis and say they weren't fit for ruling or whatever for a day. or that's, At least that's what it's been used for just for a day. So this happened under when Ronald Reagan was president and George H.W. Bush was his vice president. Ronald Reagan needed a surgery. I can't really remember what for. Huh. But anyways, he said, oh, I'm not going to be able to you know, do this for a day or two more. So he ceded power to George H.W. Bush for that day. And it's most notably known that George, George Bush did nothing, <laughs> as one might. But... With George Bush's son, when he was a president, and Dick Cheney was his vice president, George Bush actually needed, um, of all things, a um, sedated colonoscopy, of, of all things. And um, he made Dick Cheney the president for a day while he was undergoing his surgery. And of course, we know Dick Cheney being sort of like this whole you know, bad guy, had more power than the president because he was using kind of like backdoor loopholes. Uh, in the Constitution with, like, the unitary executive theory uh, and, and kind of doing things without George Bush's 
permission, even though he claims there was kind of like a special agreement made. But Dick Cheney, when he was actually made president for a day and held the title of president for that day, was quick to make sure his family knew, so he wrote a letter to his grandchildren, I think, being like he had shown that he had come full circle or whatever, and that Dick Cheney was finally president because he knew he was never going to win after his term as vice president. But it's interesting to note that that actually happened. So I'm going to do a part two to this episode. That one's going to be a little more structured because I don't know too much about it. This one I could just talk and, you know, enlighten you <laughs> with some of my knowledge. So I want to thank you guys for listening to this terribly informal episode. I hope you enjoyed it still nonetheless and learned something from it. So stay tuned for uh, part two where we talk about presidents of other nations within the United States. If that sounds, you know, correct. But thanks guys for listening. Appreciate you listening and you're taking your time out of your day or whatever to listen to me. Um, see you in the next one.